As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Demonology 101, a talk by Father Manes Tellis. Um, I thought we just might start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Holy Michael, the Archangel, defend us in the hour of battle. Be our safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And to thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel. Pray for us. Saint Gabriel. Pray for us. Saint Raphael. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brethren, be sober and vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls round like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Stand up to him strong in your faith. The devil, hell, and even sin are subjects we rarely hear in sermons these days, maybe because they are too hard to talk about or they produce a type of faith which is set on fear rather than love. Nevertheless, the church has done itself a disservice in not discussing these subjects. It is quite clear from the scriptures that Christ himself was tempted by Satan, did battle with demons. As well, he cast out demons as a sign of his authority over creation and as a means of initiating his kingdom of justice, love and peace. Furthermore, Jesus gave this power to expel demons to his disciples, and they no doubt handed this authority on to their successors right down to our own times. It is ironic that Hollywood seems to discuss the demonic and the church's response more than the church itself. With films in the late 60s and early 70s, like Rosemary's Baby and more well-known The Exorcist, or more recent films like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, The Right, and now these other films like The Conjuring, um, Hereditary, and even there's now an, uh, The uh, Exorcist uh, as a sort of a TV sort of series on, I think, Netflix or whatever. Um, they, all kind of, uh, they all kind of resonate with and are fascinated with this side of the church's ministry, which is rarely discussed in open and public. The phenomenon also of the occult and its relationship to demonic possession and possession have also become mainstream and I, and I dare say normal. And that's particularly, we see that in a number of these films like um, The Exorcist, uh, the whole uh, demonic activity occurs because of a dabbling in the occult that is um, like new age sort of practices, tarot cards, psychics, Ouija boards, all sorts of so today's talk will be in three parts. First, I want to address, albeit briefly, the demonic and occult practice in Scripture. Then I will pass on to the theological reflections of St. Thomas Aquinas and his understanding of spiritual beings. And thirdly, I will explore the area of demonic obsession and possession. So what are demons? So our first point of call whenever we discuss uh, elements of church teaching. We go back to, obviously, those documents of faith, the, the scriptures. In the Old Testament, belief in demons was a common thing. Uh, many ethnic groups who surrounded the Israelite people would have been aware of these type of beings. 
Interestingly, the Old Testament rarely refers to demons per se. For the Israelite, evil as well as good was sent by God or by his messengers who were commissioned by God to punish errant humanity. And so uh, this idea that God also sends evil upon people, it quite, it's just a sort of a troubling understanding for us, but for the Old Testament world, it was this idea that that was a part of God's judgment on humanity, so he could send uh, particular angels who did evil or wrought havoc upon, upon human beings. And uh, this is particularly seen in a certain angel, and he's only given the name the destroyer. Uh, he is given uh, full authority by God to wreak havoc on, on, uh, on people, uh, particularly those who have uh, fallen away from the observance of God's covenant, and it's sort of a way of, of punishing errant humanity. When we scan the biblical data, even the primary perpetrator of evil, Satan, was originally an obedient servant of God, sent to test men, as is seen in the, book, in the beginning of the book of Job. So too do we observe in the prophecy of Zechariah that Satan accuses human beings of wrongdoing. This office of accusing or acting as God's prosecution is evident in the New Testament book of the Apocalypse, where Satan is given the innocuous name of the accuser. Strangely, the ghosts of the dead were apparently also regarded as quasi-demons, with whom converse was strictly forbidden. Another idea about demons common in early Judaism is that they were really pagan gods, the gods of, say, the Assyrians, Babylonians, or Egyptians, and these were enemies of the God of Israel. Post-exilic Israelites also believed in an evil spirit known as Azazel, to whom the scapegoat was sent out to on the Day of Atonement. So after the exile, after the exile into Babylon in the 300s, um, there was this idea of um, uh, getting rid of sin in some way uh, was this ceremony that the high priest would do each year uh, on the Day of Atonement. He would, he would ceremonious, ceremoniously place his hands on a goat and would, would, would symbolically transfer the sins of the people on this goat and then they'd send this goat out into the desert as a sort of an offering to this demon called Azazel to placate him and to uh, give uh, sin uh, back to its uh, origin, that is, back to uh, those demonic spirits. Later biblical and extra-biblical writings attest the form of demons we are more familiar with, that is, beings who, are, who cause men physical harm, seduce them into moral evil, and they were also perceived of as God's enemies. It was also about this time, 2nd century BC, in intertestamental, intertestamental Jewish literature, such as the book of Enoch, uh, we see that demons were fallen angels whose fall consisted in rebelling under the leadership of Satan against God. Coupled with the belief in demonic spirits was also the practice of the occult in all its various forms. In fact, the topic of occult practice rears its head often in Old Testament literature. The reason for occult practice in the ancient Near East and in Israel itself was for two reasons. Namely, the desire to control supernatural power or spirits. Secondly, the desire for knowledge that cannot be attained through ordinary means. In Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are strong prohibitions against such practices as divination, soothsaying, 
augury, charming, wizardry, necromancy, consulting mediums, and sorcery. So too in the prophetic literature, that is prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, we see frequent condemnations concerning the consultation of mediums and engaging in sorcery. So all of those particular practices, going to a medium to um, evoke a spirit up from um, the other side, or um, engaging in some kind of practice of divination like um, casting lots to determine someone's future, all these sorts of things, were seen as a lack of trust in God's providence, and that's why they are prohibited. So when a person engages in that activity, they want to have control over their future in some way, shape, or form without reference to God. And that's a contravention of the, of the covenant uh, that God has with Israel. That the covenant is it's a, it's a covenant of trust. It's a covenant of love. It's a covenant of um, mutual, uh, mutual um, support. So uh, when, when a person engages in occult practice, they want, to, um, they want power over the supernatural and they want to know things that are actually hidden from them in some way, shape or form. And in doing so, this creates this distrust of God and a lack of faith in God. So, so when, we, when people go to um, um, mediums or clairvoyants or psychics or whatever, uh, that's, that activity is sinful because it, it's, a, it's a sin against faith. It's a sin against our trust in God's love for us and in trust, and in, in, in it's, a, it's a sort of a... Um, uh, uh, no, an idea of, of being suspicious that God won't come through with his promises and therefore we need to access this other knowledge uh, to sort of um, help us along the way. In the New Testament, uh, the Greek word daimones, the demons, occurs only once in Matthew chapter 8, verse 31. Other cognate Greek words such as todemonion or tardemonia are also frequent in the New, New Testament texts. This word um, demonion um, means in, in, in its original Greek uh, a reference to a, a major or a minor god in Greek mythology. Overall, it was seen as a word which applied to supernatural beings or supernatural power. The word in Greek is this, daimon. Um, it just basically means a supernatural power, any kind of supernatural power. But we've taken it obviously into the English to mean a, a malevolent supernatural power. The two main concepts regarding demons in the New Testament refer to either an apocalyptic situation or the notion that they are pagan gods. And this is seen in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter, 20, chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. The New Testament is also primarily concerned with the moral aspects of the demons as those who tempt humanity and are hostile to humanity's spiritual good. A regular highlight of the Gospels is Jesus' frequent confrontations with evil spirits or demons who seek to create a kingdom opposed to that of God's. And if you've been doing, if, you read, if, you're, if you're reading through Mark's Gospel, count how many times Jesus has confrontations with evil spirits. It's like every other page. <laughs> it's like there's plenty of them in Israel at that time. And he gives the power to the disciples to also cast out these demons. As well, there are important theological issues when Jesus confronts demons. For instance, the revela revelation 
of the so-called messianic secret. So often you'll read in Mark's gospel particularly, these demons are saying, oh, what are you to do with us, Jesus, the son of God? He goes, be quiet. Be quiet. He doesn't want them to reveal his true identity yet because that evokes uh, a response from the people about messiahship and they get the wrong idea about what they want from a messiah. They thought Jesus was there to fight their battles for them. In fact, Jesus is there for a higher, higher reason. And so Jesus stops these demons from fully proclaiming who he is. It's also a, it's also a, um, it's also a literary, uh, a literary form of irony that the the people who are most opposed to Jesus's ministry, the demons, are the ones who confess him to be Lord. The people who should acknowledge him as Lord and who would benefit from him and his his kingdom don't don't know that and don't acknowledge it. So it's because of the this ironic situation that it's the forces of evil that acknowledge Christ's power and Christ's dominion. The phenomenon of, of demonic possession is also seen in the New Testament. An important incidence of this occur in the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, particularly the story of the Gadarene or Gerasene demoniac. In this encounter, Jesus meets a young man who is possessed with a number of spirits. Our Lord asks the demons how many there are, and the response is, I am legion, for we are many. A legion was a segment of the Roman army comprising 6,000 men. The man is described in some of the synoptics as having vast strength since he had broken the chains that were regularly used to restrain him, which is, as we will see later, a sign of demonic possession. Furthermore, the man in his address to Jesus does not address Jesus as himself, but as the spirit naming itself Legion. What have I to do with thee, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure thee by, by God that thou torment me not. In Matthew's account, the demons ask, have you come to torment us before the time? This shows that they are doomed, but they think that their judgment is too early. So, so in a sense, these demons are having a conversation with Jesus about, about uh, activity that is happening, in a sense, uh, above, above the text. It's sort of behind the scenes, as it were. There's this cosmic battle between Jesus and these forces of evil, which is now being played out even in the earthly realm. Another interesting encounter of demonic possession we find is in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, verses 16 to 18. This particular incident of possession has its genesis in practicing the occult arts. Here in this particular uh, passage of scripture, St. Paul encounters a girl who, the writer of Acts says, had been possessed by a spirit of divination. In this incident, the principle of desiring hidden knowledge through extraordinary means is illustrated this being one of the two principal reasons for engaging in occult practice I alluded to earlier. Paul and his disciples, while sojourning in the Macedonian town of Philippi, encounter a young girl who is a slave to some soothsayers and brings them great profit from her hidden gift. The girl follows the apostles and his disciples, shouting at them, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It is of important note the girl accurately understood who Paul was and his mission, much like the gathering demoniac knew who Jesus was and his mission. And both of these stories highlight a power manifested by the possessed, namely the knowledge of hidden things. 
We move now to the second part of this talk, which concerns itself with the nature of demonic spirits. What are they about? Who are they? The Aristotelian Thomistic school of philosophy posits there is a hierarchy of being in the order of things that exist. And at its pinnacle is the uncreated God. So there's divine being at the top, what we call God, followed by created immaterial intelligences, which we call angels and demons. So, so God is uncreated spirit. Then we have created spirits. And I don't mean gin or whiskey. <laughs> which we commonly refer to as demons or angels. Really, if we want to be really um, specific about what we're dealing with here, we should really call them created spirits or blessed or cursed spirits. Angels, uh, the word angel does not determine who they are. It only determines their office. The word angelos in Greek means a messenger. So really the only angels in a sense are um, ones that bring messages. So like the, the angel Gabriel, for instance, or the angel Raphael uh, bring messengers or support a human, a human subject. So in the, in the sense of Raphael, we re read in the book of Tobit, he helps Tobit uh, on his way. And then we know that Gabriel visits uh, both Zechariah and Our Lady in uh, St. Luke's Gospel, uh, bringing a message. So really, if you want to be specific about who these uh, creatures are, um, then we should call them created or blessed or cursed spirits. Lastly, human entities have their position at the bottom of this list, and they are entities that have the dual powers of uh, intellect and will. So all all of these have intellect and will. And then we have humans, human beings, which are spirit and flesh. And then you have purely material things, like well, animals, but things like rocks and sand. It gets everywhere. Um, you can sort of see this particular sort of layout that there's a sort of a, um, a sort of a, you know, a pattern here. You've got uncreated spirit, created spirit, then you've got flesh and spirit, and then you've got purely material. Or you've got uncreated spirit, created spirits, human beings who are both spirit and matter, and then you've got pure matter, material things. So there's a sort of this hierarchy of being, uh, as it were. But only these three groups here have intellect and will. And so we can regard those three categories, the divine being, the created spirits and human beings, as persons. Because philosophically, a person in Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy, a person is a, is a subject which has intellect and will, capable of rational thought, capable of um, making judgments, capable of, of understanding universals, all sorts of things. So this is sort of the philosophical background. Now, when we talk about spirits and created spirits like demons and angels, we can't really 
talk about them from a philosophical perspective because they can't be proved from philosophy. We only know about angels and demons from revelation, uh, from the fact they appear in the pages of the scriptures. So, um, but St. Thomas, um, putting on his philosopher's hat, said it's, it's, it's becoming, it's, 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 um, it's not um, improbable that if we look at a hierarchy of being, that there would be this particular pattern. Because if you've got spirit and flesh and then you've got just the divine being, well, what's really in between that? Is there something in between that? And, and St. Thomas says, well, you know, if God's creating an actual hierarchy, um, it's not improbable that there's something that fills the gap in between God and man. And considering there's such a gulf between God and man, God and human beings, that there needs to be this other created group of things which um, perhaps tend towards being more like God than like human beings, okay? Um, so this is where the created spirits sort of fit into the, uh, the whole um, hierarchy or, or, or categories. The Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches about the angelic nature in general and thus the nature of demons, saying, as purely spiritual creatures, angels and thus demons have intelligence and will. They are personal, that is, they are persons, like you and I are persons, and are immortal creatures, surpassing in perfection all visible creatures as the splendour of their glory bears witness. St. Thomas, in his Summa Theologiae, writes about angelic knowledge, saying, an angel is called intellect and mind because all his knowledge is intellectual. Both angels and demons do not need the senses to know things. They perceive things rather immediately as infused ideas from God. Nor do they grow in knowledge as we do. They have all their knowledge about things already given to them from the moment of their creation. Though, as we will see, there is a hierarchy of these spirits. So too, there is a, a difference in angelic knowledge. Therefore, not all angels know the same amount of information. The higher the angel, the more powerful the intellect. And if, if you've been aware of um, the retranslation of the Missal, we start talking about things like virtues and dominions and powers and thrones. These are actually these different ranks of blessed spirits. Um, so there's this hierarchy, even in the angelic world, there's a hierarchy of these created spirits, both good and both bad. Demons more specifically. The demons are angelic spirits then, pure intelligences infused with everything they need to know given to them at the moment of their creation. Where the demons differ from the angels that they have willfully and intellectually perceived another good other than God. Thus they incur damnation immediately because they know more eminently what they have done. The major sin of the demons, however, is pride because they wish their good be something other than God. As well, the other major sin, St. Thomas notes, is envy. They envy man particularly for two reasons. First, because God assumed a human nature in Jesus Christ. And second, because men had the ability to repent and receive forgiveness of their sins something the demons can never have. So thank God for confession. Demons can't go to confession. So oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Can I come back in? And God goes, no, you knew what you were doing. Sorry, bye-bye. Um, this is why demons particularly have it in for humanity because 
of the grace of salvation. The demons then will do anything to deceive human beings into despair and give them the idea that they can never be forgiven their sins and enjoy salvation. So often when we fall into sin, uh, the greatest victory of the, of the demon or the greatest victory of Satan is not so much the sin, you know, um, stealing 50 bucks from your mum and feeling bad about it. It's actually the idea that, um, and this links into Satan as accuser, goes, oh, you go to church all the time, but you steal money. You're actually a sinner. Don't worry about going back to church again. Because, you, you know, you're just going to do it next week. And you fall into this despair I can't be saved. What's the point? I go to Mass every Sunday. I go to confession every week. I just keep doing the same thing. I see no growth in my spiritual life. In fact, I'm actually getting worse. Maybe Satan's right. And, and Satan's going... <laughs> How do these angels become bad? The father of the church, particularly Gregory the Great, considered that Satan was the highest of the angels. His name was Lucifer. The light bearer. And because of his bad example, many other angels followed him. Thomas Aquinas speculates uh, that he turned to evil because he, desired, he did not desire absolute equality with God, since he knew the unbridgeable gulf between creatures and God. So created spirits can't literally become God. Nor, Aquinas remarks, could Satan have wanted literally to be God, since that would have meant that he would have wanted to cease to exist as what he naturally was, an angel. But, Aquinas argues, it is not absurd to think that Satan could have wanted the good of his beatific vision to be something due to him by right, or something deriving from what he was by nature, and not as a matter of God's free gift. So what, what Thomas Aquinas is saying here, that he, that here is that what Satan wanted was the vision of God given to him as his right, I'm the best angel in the universe. You demand, I demand you show yourself to me immediately in who you are, because I'm the best. I'm the best of your creation. You don't give it to me as a gift. It's mine by right, because I'm the best. <laughs> like Muhammad Ali, the best. And any, anything, everything that God gives is a gift, because we don't have a right to any of this. But Satan wanted it as his right by nature. And so this is the beginning of this fall. Now, where is this all takes place? We don't know. There's, no, there's nothing in the scriptures that sort of like, and there's no prequel before Genesis. You know, it's not like you know, episodes one and three, you know, the, the angel wars. You know, there's not, nothing of that in, 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 uh, in um, scriptures. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. Maybe we need to get George Lucas to write that part. I don't know. Um, but so there's nothing, there's no sort of discussion of this primordial war between angels and these demons and God. It's alluded to throughout the scriptures, particularly in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, uh, book of Job. Uh, there's these, there's these, these angels that, who have gone bad. So this, this idea that Satan wanted to see God as a right, according to his perfect nature, uh, was the real sin. Uh, so it's a sin of pride, uh, eventually. It is to be noted, as I alluded to earlier, that there is a hierarchy even among immaterial spirits, with the seraphim at the top. 
Then the cherubim, the thrones, the dominions, virtues, powers, archangels, principalities, and then the widow, widow angels. The demons keep their hierarchy in hell too. So there's more powerful demons and lesser demons as well. And this is seen particularly by, um, by uh, exorcists that often there are little demons or weaker demons and there's a stronger demon that often possess people. And uh, the smaller demons seem to sort of get wiped out. It's like um, when you're playing video games and you're playing these there's easier round bosses to kill than others. So, <laughs> so the exorcist is getting really boing, boing, little flying out, and then you, get the, you meet the guy at the end. <laughs> it's a bit like that. The third part of our discussion, the diabolical spirit. So I'm going to talk now about demonic possession, uh, obsession, and exorcism. I will now move to the third part of this presentation, namely the phenomenon of demonic obsession and possession. Normally, diabolical influence on the individual is restricted to simple temptation, although it is not likely that the majority of temptations proceed from the immediate and direct intervention of demons. At other times, with God's permission, a demon may concentrate his power on an individual by means of diabolical obsession or possession. So in the ordinary, everyday temptations that we go through, and, you know, I really want to eat that next piece of pizza. I've had already about five pieces, but I really want the next one. That's not the devil going, hey, have another slice. It's usually just being me being a fat glutton. Don't blame the devil for your, the fact that you've got, you know, you know the middle-aged spread or the, the spare tyre or the um, saddlebags. What's that? It's more self-control, that's right, discipline. Just have some garlic bread. Um, a person may be either obsessed or possessed. So there's two distinctions when we come to um, demonic activity with regard to um, individuals. So the first one is obsession. That's not a perfume, by the way. So there's demonic obsession. And then there's demonic possession. This is external, more or less. And this is internal. So when I say it's external, the idea is with demonic obsession that the demonic influence occurs around the person. Sometimes it affects, um, uh, you know, it can be like, for instance, seemingly bad luck. It could be an illness that no doctor knows how to cure. You know, you've got these mystery symptoms and you've been to 10,000 doctors and they can't tell you what it is. And uh, you find out that, you know, your, your ex-boyfriend's grandma put a curse on you or something like that. Because you know. she's a witch. Uh, it could be, um, sometimes it could be the senses can be um, interfered with give you an example. Um, many times in the lives of the saints, we see this. Padre Pio, for instance, saw visions of the devil um, or hallucinations uh, that seemed real. Um, it, might be, it might be even a demon uh, presenting himself as a saint or as someone important. So in Padre Pio's recollections, the devil appeared to him a number of times as Our Lady, 
uh, as a St. Michael the Archangel, as his provincial, but that's probably true. Uh, <laughs> um, appeared to him as the, you know, the Pope, all sorts of things. Like, you know, so, um, so the senses can be interfered with. So often there's these hallucinations. Um, sometimes it can be physical violence. So in Padre Pio's um, situation, he was beaten up by, by the demons. So there can be physical violence occurring. He recounts that the devil would beat him with a chain or, or something. He'd actually have marks on himself in the morning he'd wake up. With. So why would God allow that to happen? God allows it to happen to, in a sense, is that once again, it's like that test of faith. But you're not going to get it, probably, because you'll probably read comics or something like that. You don't really... You go to Mass once a week and have a pretty, you know, cornflake-like prayer life. It's <laughs> sort of pretty crumbly. Um, it, usually the demons attack people who are actually closest to God because they know that they're the more... If I can knock Padre Pio out, if I can get him onto my team, that's one, one goal against God. They're not really worried about you. It's a bit like... Um, Screw tape letters. I don't know if you've ever read Screw tape letters uh, by C.S. Lewis, where the, the old devil complains to the young devil that you know it's too easy these days to tempt people because people are pretty wretched anyway. Like they just corrupt, so it's not not fun. You know, like the good old days when we used to actually have to do some work. Um, so this demonic obsession um, is ways of agitating people and making them feel. Well, eventually feel forgotten by God. You know? Where's your God now? Here, I'm beating you up, and where's God? You know? But that's where the, the strength of that particular person's faith comes in, that Padre Pio or the Cure of Ars, St. John Vianney, or St. Gemma Galgani, uh, a number of saints um, had this experience, St. Ignatius of Loyola, had this experience of the demonic in their lives, but didn't allow it to sort of destroy them or, or turn them over to um, the kingdom of Satan. So that's demonic obsession. I'm going very quickly with this because we probably don't have a lot of time, but um, it's more external. Demonic possession um, uh, is something else. There's a few... Um, hang on. That's the reasons why somebody might be demonically obsessed. I've also kind of... Some people bring it on themselves as well, and this is because of the involvement with the, with the uh, occult activity. Um, going to a medium, going to a seance, playing with a Ouija board, in some way, shape or form opens us up to, it's like opening a window to another world, to a, an, the other realm, and allowing the, these malevolent spirits, often they're malevolent spirits, evil spirits, evil agents, um, in, uh, in some that's why the church is very much against and condemns as sinful this activity. So if you're involved or have been involved with occult activity at any time, go to confession about it. Make sure that that's, that's forgiven as a sin. But what is diabolical possession? This is really this is the, the meat and potatoes now of what we're here for today. Diabolical possession is a phenomenon in which a demonic spirit actually invades the body of a living person and moves the faculties and organs as if he were manipulating a body of his own. The demon truly resides within the, within the body of the unfortunate victim and he operates in it and treats it as his own property. 
those who suffer this despotic invasion are said to be possessed. So that's why I said it's more internal, because this, this spirit has actual control over you. It actually has control over and you, and almost like uses you like a puppet. Often um, there are two um, periods that can be distinguished in demonic possession. Um, and these are um, the periods of um, calm and periods of crisis. The period of crisis are manifested by a violent onslaught of evil, and it's very violent, represents it for being continual or even very prolonged. It is the moment at which the demon openly reveals himself by acts, words, convulsions, seizures of anger or impiety, obscenity or blasphemy. In the, um, in the majority of cases, the victim loses conscience of what is happening to them during this seizure as happens in the great crises of certain mental disorders. When they regain consciousness, they have no recollection of what they have said or done, or rather of what the demon has said or done in them. So it's as if um, the, the person um, loses consciousness entirely and then this other force um, comes out. Um, and so, the person themselves is not responsible for what they say or do. Um, this is the interesting thing with demonic possession is that at all times the person has, has control over their will. They're an innocent victim in this whole situation often. It's like, it's, in, as a metaphor, it's a bit like, um, it's like, a bit like a, you know, your house, um, your place. Are you live by yourself? or do you? Who lives by themselves or lives in a unit or something? No one. Um, say you lived in a unit by yourself and then all of a sudden he came in, he came in, he came in, he came in and just wanted to live at your place. <laughs> and, they, and they're not very clean. Um, and you don't have any control over this. <laughs> you don't have any control over the mess that they make. And all that. You're, the, you're, the, you're the poor victim who has to suffer through these guys coming in and just sort of you know, squatting at your place. This is a little bit like the demon. The demon squats in the person's body and is, is unwelcome, uh, uh, came in through the window. We don't know how he got in, actually. We, well, you know, I may have briefly shook his hand at a pub or something, and then he found out my address, and all of a sudden he's using my um, PlayStation. Um, so he's in there, and, and, and he, we can't get him out now. So how do we evict the demon? That's basically the idea of exorcism, is eviction of these demons that, that you know, get out you know, now. And so um, exorcism is, uh, then, is then needed in this situation. So what, how, do you, how do you go and get an exorcism? Have you ever seen The Exorcist, the film? Have you seen it? Do you remember what happens at the start when, when she, when, when she realises that the doctors say, look, have you ever tried an exorcism? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, look, it's some sort of mumbo-jumbo the Catholic Church still does. What does she, goes, what, what does she do? What does she do? When she realises that when Reagan goes through all the battle, battery of tests and they find that there's nothing wrong with her, and then she wants to get the exorcism, what does he, she, she goes and actually finds the priest. Yeah. And what does he say? Can you remember? 
He says, go back in a time machine, go back to the 16th century. It's like, we don't do this much these days. You know, it's like, what are you, what are you asking this for? Like, so you, just, you can't just go down to the polling centre and say, is anyone up for an exorcism tonight? <laughs> They'll tell you probably, they'll probably ring up the police or the ambulance and take you to Concord Psychiatric Hospital. Um, so there's a certain procedure um, that we need to go through when, when an exorcism is conducted. 90, 95% of, of the people requesting exorcisms um, have mental disorders. And that's speaking to people who are exorcists or no exorcists, that 95% of the people ringing up polling centre asking for an exorcism are, are need to get back on their medication. Because it's very interesting that mental illness does, it does, it does seem like they're possessed. I know a woman, I have, I have a, um, a, a knowledge, pastoral connection with a woman um, who, is, who frequents... Uh, church, and she will walk around the church sometimes shouting out blasphemies. F God and F Jesus and all this sort of thing. And you'd swear, and it's chilling to li listen to. Like, oh, I woke up one Saturday morning and this woman was outside my window shouting these obscenities. It's scary. You know? But the thing is, is that she doesn't fulfil the criteria. You know, just running around shouting out blasphemies isn't enough to sort of, you know, bring in the, uh, the exorcist. What do we need to, to get an exorcism? What, what will actually um, sway the bishop to um, permit an exorcism? So there were three, there were three criteria, um, and we've covered um, some of them already. The first one is uh, a knowledge of um, languages that have never been learnt. So if, um, is it James? Finbar. Who? Finbar. Finbar um, starts speaking in um, uh, Swahili and he's never been to Africa. He's not involved with the African Studies Department at uh, UTS. I don't know, is there one? I don't know. Um, he starts to speak Swahili. He's never learnt Swahili before. It's all very strange. He could possibly be possessed. So it's this knowledge of languages that, and I can have a comment, like we get a person from, who speaks Swahili and talks to you and you're having a, you know, how's the day going? Um, uh, hey, hang on, that's a bit weird. So the Roman ritual has these three categories. The first one is knowing languages that have never been learnt. The second one is knowledge of hidden things. So what do I mean by that? It's not like, um, I know the numbers for Cross Lotto. <laughs> Here they are. Um, it could be, it could be the, the numbers for Cross Lotto. Often it's not. It might be something more personal. And often this is brought out in an exorcism where, where the, pers the, the, the demon may say something about the priest doing an exorcism, saying, oh, you know, you know but I adjure you by Satan. And the demon goes, how's your girlfriend going? And no one knew that this guy had a girlfriend. Priest had a girlfriend. Or a boyfriend. So things like that, hidden things that no one, you know, like, you know, you want to keep that pretty quiet. Um, things like that that the demon might say, oh, 
your mother's with us. Um, how's your mother going? How's, Dag- how's Agnes going? And I've not told anyone what my, what, you know, I've never told this person what my mother's name is. And this is what the demons, the demons start talking about a whole lot of things that, you know, uh, that I've done. Usually it's sins of a person, hidden sins. But it's often thing, knowledge of things hidden. And that we saw that in, in the, um, the New Testament, uh, you know, the, the, the woman, the girl crying out, saying, this guy's, these guys are from God and they're here to save us. And all that. Paul never talked to that woman, that girl, never spoke to her about this. So the knowledge of hidden things. And the last one, which is, which is sort of probably also seen somewhat in mental illness as supernatural strength. So if, we, if Winnie's throwing tables at me and, and um, picking up cars and throwing them around or, or you know, chests of drawers and stuff like that, it's probably pretty likely she's, uh, she's not doing it alone. It'd be a bit different with, uh, what's your name? Andrew, if Andrew was throwing cars at me, I probably would say, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big lad. So these are like the, um, these are like the, the, the symptoms and, and these are the um, particular things that the exorcists look, look for when, um, when they're uh, assessing uh, an exorcism. So there has to be something pretty extraordinarily supernatural going on. It can't be, it can't be uh, always uh, just sort of um, things we're a bit uncomfortable with, like, you know, he blasphemes now and again. Sometimes more than, there's more other um, behaviours that perhaps also um, are, um, are there when someone's possessed, but they're no, they don't always... Uh, can always be attributed to a supernatural cause. What the church is always trying to find is, is there something supernatural about this particular condition? The church, is a, the church would take great lengths to, to, to try and explain everything naturally insofar as that's possible. So that's why the, the person has to go through extraordinarily um, intense psychiatric evaluation before they go anywhere near uh, an exorcism? Um, is the person on their medication? Is the person seeing a psychiatrist regularly? Is a psychiatrist not sure what's really going on? Have they manifested these sorts of behaviours? Um, then they can kind of go, go ahead uh, with, the, with an exorcism. So there's two types of exorcism. There's minor exorcism and then there's... Um, Solemn. Solemn exorcism is when you um, is when you wear a lace surplus and in, in, no, it's only true. Um, minor exorcisms anyone any priest can kind of do. I mean, even like the prayer to Saint Michael the Archangels are kind of a, a minor exorcism, and there are certain prayers that priests can say as, as minor exorcisms. Um, but then the solemn exorcism. Is, uh, is done by a priest who's given the faculty to do so by his bishop. So the Archbishop of Sydney, Archbishop Fisher, has to give explicit permission to a particular priest to do this exorcism. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work. The devil goes, I'm not coming out. I'm not leaving. Why? Because 
The priest needs authority, apostolic authority to do this. And this goes all the way back to the New Testament, that our Lord himself gave uh, power to the apostles to um, exorcise demons. And that power, uh, that apostolic power is passed on by virtue of what we know as apostolic succession, that once the apostles were, you know, looking for going down to Centrelink and getting their Centrelink check, uh, they had to ordain these other guys to become their successors and on, on now to our own time. So we have an unbroken link back to the time of the apostles through our bishops. And it's through the bishop, by his delegated authority to a particular priest, that he then has the power to engage in solemn exorcism. The archbishop could do it himself. Any bishop could do it because they have apostolic authority. So we could have uh, uh, Bishop Fisher... Bishop Brady, Bishop Umbers, Bishop Rendazzo, Tony Rendazzo. Um, you know, they could, they could do an exorcism. Uh, in fact, the, one of the previous exorcists of the diocese was Archbishop Porteous. He, he engaged in exorcisms uh, himself. Do the observers need permission for the archbishop? Mm. 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 Normally in each diocese, every diocese, canon law says every diocese should have an exorcist or must have an exorcist. Uh, so that's usually a priest who's delegated by the archbishop or by the bishop to do so. Um, uh, and normally his name is not in the telephone book because every Tom, Dick and Harry would be, oh, come, come down to, you know, the uh, Bexley, we've got a demon in the house. And then it's like, you know, it'd be, it'd be, and they're all vexatious sort of calls. You know. <laughs> So, so the main thing for solemn exorcism, you have to have a priest who is delegated by the bishop to do this. Before he engages in exorcism, he has to go to confession, should go to sacramental confession, fast and pray beforehand, and then perform the rite of exorcism, normally in a church or a chapel, uh, unless there's exceptional circumstances. It might be done at a home. And it has to be in the, in the company of, as it says here, serious and pious witnesses. Often it's with people who are like... Uh, a prayer team or, or parishioners who the, the priest is um, sure will help him, particularly spiritually. Um, and, and, and also you need sufficient assistance because sometimes if the person's got supernatural strength, you need a couple of Andrews to sort of stand there and lie on the person before they throw a tire at you or something. Like um, during the moment of crisis, so when the, when the demon manifests itself, uh, the, the priest should not ask the demon too many questions, but should just do what the ritual says. So you just follow the prayers of the ritual, um, and, and usually that's sufficient um, to, to be able to, um, to do the exorcism. As I said, that often one exorcism is not enough. You may, have to, you may have to do a number of them. And some people, some exorcists are saying nowadays... They've got to do more. Or in the old days, maybe maybe did just one or two. Nowadays, you've got to do more because the, the, the demons that are involved are much more, are much stronger, much more powerful, and so the, the number of sessions uh, may be um, maybe like you could go over a year, some of them, or more, and so that's um, that's something that needs to be um, uh, thought about too. It's not it's not a game. It's not a um, it's not just something you just do and then you go home. Conclusion. Today there is a, um, 
spiritual crisis, a deep spiritual crisis, with the waning of organised religion and the deep lack of the spiritual in people's lives, it has not gone unnoticed that to fulfil the void, many have left conventional religions such as Christianity for do-it-yourself spiritualities that have become syncretistic and are contingent on instant spiritual gratification. Others who find their lives difficult but have nowhere to turn often so as to gain deeper insight into their lives or acquire a greater control over their destinies have sought the assistance of psychics, mediums or tarot cards to determine their fate. Even more so, others look to mediums so as to gain access to deceased relatives or friends in the hope of finding out how they are and in, contact, and in, in the hope of contacting the dead um, will all often uh, find some sort of consolation uh, because of that. The unfortunate fact of these situations has, it would seem, been with humanity for many a millennia. Humanity is interested in knowledge which is hidden or beyond its reach, and therefore the temptation to contact supernatural forces is strong. Within the Catholic Church, it is understood that many who have dabbled in the occult have in turn sought help from an exorcist to rid them of their demonic afflictions and that have assaulted them. The power of the demonic is then a reality that some have experienced, either sinner or saint. And it is these entities which can at times interfere with the human realm. Today's talk has but hit the surface of this interesting yet terrifying phenomenon. And it is important for us to know about these things, but not be fearful, for God is always with us. And he gives us to endure the affliction of evil, no matter how terrible it is. And I conclude with an exhortation from St. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everyone. That was Father Manes tell us with Demonology 101. For more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.